the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. History has clearly shown that Christ is required to overcome the natural tendency of powerful forces to destroy God-given rights, including the right to hear and speak His truth. Welcome to Biblical Citizen, Let's Roll, with Kathleen and Brian Melanakis. Kathleen is an author and retired registered nurse, and her husband Brian is a former company president. Kathleen and Brian are here to discuss current events from a biblical worldview and how we as believers can be salt and light in our culture and in the political arena. Biblical Citizen Let's Roll seeks to educate and activate Christians at the grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibility to influence civic affairs for good. Now, here are your hosts, Kathleen and Brian Melanakis on K-Praise. Hello, Biblical Citizens. So excited to talk to our guest today, Jay Warner Wallace. Maybe some of you have read his best-selling book, Cold Case Christianity, and I have read it. It's a fascinating book. He's written other books as well, including Forensic Faith and God's Crime Scene. He has a new book out called Person of Interest, and of course that's referring to our Lord and King Jesus. And he's going to tell us about that today. J. Warner Wallace is a former award-winning murder detective. He lived as an atheist who thought God was a myth and the Bible a bunch of fairy tales until around age 35. He completely changed his worldview when he applied his finely honed detective skills to the historical life and actions of Jesus. He's become a major apologist, teaching at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, speaking and writing to national and global audiences. We'll hear his story of how he came to faith today. And, you know, Mr. Wallace is an amazing thinker. You can tell that just by speaking to him or reading his books. And that's one question I want to ask him about today, about just the process of thinking itself. So welcome to our show today, Mr. Wallace. Well, I'm just so glad to be with both of you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, You know, I thought it was really striking that you said you did not become a Christian because your life wasn't working, as so many happens to many, you know, they reach a desperate point. But you were living what you believed was a pretty good life, doing meaningful work, solving murders, other crimes, being a husband and father, and pretty successful. So what prompted you to start investigating Jesus? Well, um, my wife, more, more, more than anything else, we both of us, um, we were together about 18 years. I was 35. Um, I was not um, all that interested in uh, anything at all. I didn't know anybody growing up who was a Christian. I just, you know, where I lived in that part of Los Angeles County, it's not a dominantly Christian culture. Um, didn't know any kids you know, who were Christians. None of my family was a Christian. Uh, but when I met my wife, um, she had been raised in a kind of a culturally Catholic background. And although we had been together like maybe 18 years by the time we started having kids, and, and she said to me, well, should we like bring our kids to church to help raise our kids? And I, and I honestly 
I didn't, I couldn't even imagine what that would look like because that wasn't, I didn't do that. And, but I was the kind of person though, I'd be willing to go. My dad's that way. He was an atheist. He'd be willing to go to church with you. He actually thinks that, that, that the country that is raised under Christian principles or even a family that's raised within Christian principles is better off than a family that isn't. But he thinks it's like, like a useful uh, delusion. Uh, and that was my view as well. I, you know, if you want to go, I'll be happy to go. I want to be a dutiful husband. I want to be a good father, but um, I don't need to believe it's true in order to go and maybe get something out of it. So, so mm-hmm. I, I delayed and delayed and delayed. We were here in in, uh, in Southern California, and so I, she eventually got me to go to a church. First time I'd ever been in a church, really for anything other than like a wedding, uh, maybe a funeral. And uh, this pastor, that first day, said something that stuck in my head. He said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived, and that provoked me to to see if that was true. And that's really how this all started for me. Um, and and I, I remember hearing people talk about their testimonies. I didn't, I'll just tell you, the skeptic in me is completely uh, distrusting of people's testimony, okay? Mm-hmm. So that would never impress me as a non-believer. And, but then when I became a believer, I thought, well, I got a really lame story because a lot of the people I knew who had these great, amazing conversion stories, they really did go through some amazing difficulties in their life that that God has the power to to redeem and and that wasn't my story I, I didn't I wasn't trying to fix anything I wasn't I just got curious about Jesus and wanted to know if the Gospels were telling me something true about him mm. and and once I determined that they were I just didn't feel like there was any choice but to give my life to Jesus because I felt like you know how would I deny the truth any further and so, so for me, it really was a matter of, is this true or not? Yeah. Well, well I want to, I want to get into that. Uh, did you have something, Kevin? Well, that was similar to me too. Just, I just want to put that in real quick. Um, I wanted to know the truth and yeah, my life wasn't working that well either. <laughs> you <laughs> but, had, but you had I, a double. Well, yeah, I wanted to know the truth because I wanted, I did want my life to be better, but anyway, I went on a similar journey, so so I want to get back to this book, Person of Interest. So building off what you said about your pa- that, that pastor, I guess he wasn't your pastor at that time, saying Jesus was the smartest man, you say in your preface, if Jesus was truly the smartest, most interesting, and most transformative man who ever lived, if he truly was God, we ought to be able to make a case for his existence and impact even without a body or any evidence from the New Testament. That's really a bold claim, and we haven't really gotten into your background of solving, uh, in the past, solving cold case murders, but you really bring that to the fore in how you tested the Bible. So lay out a little bit for us of how you, how you did that. Well, I mean, think about this. That, that claim is, is pretty common amongst young people. You're like, look, so you're telling me that this is God, this dude is God. He enters into the world, and all we have to show for it is a few, you know, few little documents from called the Gospels from a few people in this obscure. Like, wouldn't he make a bigger splash than that? Well, of course he did, but a lot of us are not even familiar with the splash that Jesus made in history. So the approach I'm taking in this book, and I looked at, the, at detail when I first you know became a Christian. I was looking at both the evidence in the New Testament and the evidence outside the New Testament, because all these kinds of complex cases can be made with all kinds of different forms of evidence, both inside and outside the crime scene. But I've got a number of these cases I worked that were what we call no-body murders or no-body missings, 
And what these are are just cases where somebody kills his uh, you know, business partner or his wife or she kills her husband, and then they claim that they just took off, you know, and they're missing. And so they file a missing persons report, and we take the report, and they never return. And, and they successfully disposed of the body, and so you end up with this mystery about what really happened. And you've got no evidence. You know, you, 25 years later, there's no pictures were even taken of a crime scene because it wasn't recorded as a crime scene. There's no property booked into the evidence room. There's this, you know, just how do you make a case when you've got nothing? Well, you do it by demonstrating to a jury that if that was a, a murder instead of a missing, that that was an explosive day. And, but that bomb exploded only after a long fuse had burned who knows for how many years before this detonation of this bomb. And then afterwards, you've got debris everywhere from the detonation. So we can tell you what happened on the day she went missing just from examining the fuse and the fallout. So if you were looking at Jesus and you were either unwilling to look at the New Testament or just imagine a thought experiment in which those Gospels aren't available to us anymore. Somebody has destroyed every New Testament successfully. Well, could you, it seems to me if Jesus is who he said he was, you ought to be able to reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the fuse and the fallout given his explosive appearance in history. So I'm looking at the case from fuse and fallout. In other words, everything outside the New Testament. Now, granted, all of that stuff is going to be dependent on the New Testament, people repeating it, people living by it, people citing it, and that's what we're looking at, right? But my point is that you could not erase. He's had such a tremendous impact on history that you cannot successfully erase him from history by simply destroying the New Testament. And that's exactly what we – look at it this way. There isn't a single example anywhere in the history of fiction in which a fictional character – has had this kind of impact on human history that has become the catalyst for art, literature, music, education, science, and even other world religions. That's, there's no example of any fictional character being able to do that. So there's good reason to believe that Jesus is something other than a fictional character. But you're also going to find there's not an example in the history of mortal humans in which any other mortal human has had this kind of impact and acted as a catalyst on these elements of, of human history. So there's actually now good reason to believe he's something other than a mortal human. And that's why I think that looking at the fuse and fallout can help us to shape out the robust case for the historicity and deity of Jesus. Wow, and that is something that is just amazing. Uh, one thing you mentioned was in the fallout of after he was here is that uh, he, he arrived at the very moment in history when technology had developed so that the message could go out to I think that all, was the fuse by the way okay it was the fuse okay, all the things right. that came up <laughs> like the the roman roads the papyrus well anyway that was alphabet. part of the yeah. reason that he had such a big impact is that by that by the very moment that he arrived technology had developed so that there were Roman roads everywhere all around the, the Roman Empire. There were, uh, they were using papyrus. They were using uh, common language. They were using uh, common alphabet and a number of other things. So just comment real quickly. Yeah, I mean, there's a, it, Paul says in Galatians that, that God enters into the world and sends his son in the fullness of time. And I, and I think that that is, um, 
that is really the question. Like, what does that mean? What, what, what is it about the timing of Jesus' arrival that God would say, well, it was, it was full, it was, it was prepared, it was the right moment? And it also, I think, answers the question that a lot of skeptics have as to, you know, why would Jesus come when he did? Why not come later? Why not come now when you've got all this technology in which you can proclaim the message of Jesus? Wouldn't now be a better time to come? Wouldn't you be able to demonstrate your deity even more now than you would have in the first century? Wouldn't you be able to do it globally rather than to a small people group? So I think in the end, those are the questions that people ask. Those are my questions. And and the fuse that burns up to the first century answers those questions. And one strand of that fuse is definitely the history of empires, of nations that lead up to um, the, the appearance of that explosive appearance of Jesus. You know, we call that thing the first century for a reason. Now, it's interesting because it's not the first century. It's not the first century in which humans lived, and it's not the first century in which we write history. There were many centuries that preceded the first century. Well, why are we calling it the first century? And it turns out that one of the reasons is because culture is, is being shaped and directed in such a way that now the message of, of whoever, whatever happens in that first century, that message is now transferable in a way that it wouldn't have been even just a couple of hundred years earlier. We want to and build on that. that. We want to build. Let me, sorry, but we need to take a quick break. But stay tuned, folks, for the best part as we explore the compelling case for Jesus outside of the Old and New Testaments and what this means for all of us. Be right back. There is more Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Still to come on K-Praise. Welcome back to Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Now, here are your hosts, Kathleen and Brian Milanakis on K-Praise. We are back with Jay Warner Wallace. By the way, he says to call him Jim, so we're going to do that from now on. He's an author, cold case detective, discussing his compelling new book, person of interest. So Jim, what about Jesus's impact on the arts, painting, sculpture, architecture, not only during the Middle Ages and Renaissance, which is I think what we primarily think about in this regard, but I wasn't aware how much Jesus continues to be the subject of a lot of art, doesn't he? Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I'm, you know, I look at the, the fallout side of the equation, right, the timeline. I'm looking at not just areas where Jesus has tremendous deep-seated impact, but also areas where his impact can, be, can help you reconstruct the story of Jesus. In other words, the fingerprints of Jesus are there. And, and so, for example, in the arts, that's just one place where you can reconstruct the Jesus story. So if you were just to look at the physical art, the, the visual art, uh, sculptures, etchings, uh, drawings, paintings, uh, in, up, to, up to the Middle Ages. Don't even go further than that. Forget about the Renaissance. Just stay in the Middle Ages and earlier. It turns out you can reconstruct every episode of every gospel. So I just did it for the book of Mark in the book. And look, I've illustrated this book with 400 illustrations, 400 plus, because I think it is a visual case. And it's hard to explain the timelines. It's hard to, you have to see the timelines. And, and so we're trying to do that in this book. And when you see his impact on the arts, that you can reconstruct the stories of the gospels from the, that means you have to destroy a lot in order to get rid of the, uh, the gospel message, right? You have to destroy a lot in order to get rid of the history of Jesus, because more than just the New Testament, every surface in which one of these paintings exists today would also have to be torn down. And, and what's interesting, you're right, it's not just 
So my background before I became a detective, I have a bachelor's degree in, in fine art, and I have a master's degree in architecture. And I was working as an architect when I decided to enter law enforcement. And, and so for me, my passion has always been in the arts. That's why I drew all those illustrations in this book. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it for me is to figure, okay, look, it's not just that he was, um, had an influence in antiquity. It's if you look at the history of art, you'll find that it breaks out into certain periods of time and certain genres of art that emerge across history. Well, if you simply just search for the top three artists in every historic genre from antiquity to today, and you get the top three artists in Dadaism or in Popism or in, in Impressionism or whatever the, the genre is historically, and then look at their catalog, you will find that every one of them was inspired at some point by Jesus of Nazareth and has painted, etched, sculpted, drawn Jesus. That cannot mm. be said of any other historical figure. None. But this can be said of Jesus. Why? This is not, by the way, just limited to the West. I have in the book an A to Z diagram of all of the art globally. It turns out that the image of Jesus is much more adaptable than other religious uh, icons. So, for example, if you look at how Buddha is depicted, regardless of culture and location in the world, you'll see that he's almost always depicted visually the same way, even with the same styles. Jesus, on the other hand, conforms to the culture in which he's being uh, illustrated. You'll find that ethnic groups, uh, racial groups, will depict Jesus in their own image. And a lot of that is because, you know, the story of Jesus comes to us as the, you know, the Son of God, who, and God who's created us in his image. And, and that's all of us. Every stripe, every color, every shape, every form, we all are uh, created in the image of God. And I think this is why you see the adaptable form of Jesus. That means that uh, painters and artists in every culture and every period of history have been really comfortable um, drawing Jesus or illustrating Jesus in their likeness. And, and this means you've got a lot more art that's available related to Jesus. And it's, it's very kind of cutting edge. If you look at the art in South Africa related to Christ followers who paint Jesus, can compare it to the art in, say, South America or in China or in, um, in, in India, you will find that it, for the most part, adapts to the styles. And, and artists use the Jesus uh, image to push art uh, regionally in a way that is, is really kind of unique to, to the Christian worldview. Oh, that is really interesting. And by the way, I really enjoy your drawings that you put in the book. It makes it very much more easily understood when you draw it out. <clears throat> and I, I was looking at those drawings and saying, I wonder who did those drawings. Oh, the author himself did those. <laughs> so uh, that well, really it, is it, helpful. You, you know how this works is if I said to, to, to the publisher, hey, would you be willing to hire somebody to do 400 illustrations? I think you know what their answer is going to be. So so I knew if I wanted these in, I was going to – I really kind of envisioned this book as a piece of art. You know, that is a graphic novel. It's a cop story. It's a detective story. It's a Jesus story. It's some personal testimony all wrapped into one. Well, you are a talented Man, I tell you. And I, I really loved your, <clears throat> your list of how Jesus impacted literature and books as well. You show how there are millions of books in the Library of Congress, and yet Jesus has more books written about him than, you know, far away more than anybody next down on, li- on the line. Uh, just two or three times as more 
And so the next figure is maybe Plato or Aristotle, uh, but that is another big evidence of Jesus's impact on the world as well, isn't it? That's fallout. Yeah. Yeah, it's fallout. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people don't realize that that you know if you look at the the earliest writings of the Common Era, um, you will find that there are more non-Christian voices describing Jesus in some way, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, then there are Christian voices. So so these are available in the ancient manuscripts of antiquity, and I try to give a list in the books so people can see those. But but the idea here is to show that this impact is so tremendous. There's even a thing in fiction today, a, a genre called Christ figures, where you'll see that people will create fictional characters that, that basically mimic or reinterpret the broad outline of the Jesus story. You'll see this in Marvel superheroes. You'll see it in Neo and the new Matrix movie coming out. These are these are you know uh, fictional characters that end up shaping themselves. If you were to look at all these characters, you would say, "Wow, there seems to be a pattern that emerges." Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's the Jesus pattern. Uh, that's the kind of impact that Jesus has had on literature. It's so striking that you you have to erase a lot of literature. The number of books that have been written about Jesus, like you said, he's but more than any other historical character, historical figure. So I think that kind of impact is hard to explain if Jesus is just another work of fiction. No, we we derive fiction from the the truth in in re, you know reality. Uh, that's what we're seeing here. There are fictional characters that resemble Christ, but Jesus is the true living man. For, on whom all that fiction is based. That's a Absolutely. that's a compelling point. Jim, one thing I want to ask you about, it, I want to tie in your evidence-based approach to the apologetics that you do. Now, we know, we all know, there's abundant evidence for God and Jesus. Paul says in Romans, people really have no excuse for not seeing evidence of a creator just looking at the things that are made. And then you take yeah. it, I think, uh, a major step further in your book saying, you don't even have to go to the New Testament to prove that Jesus, as you say, was the most extraordinary, phenomenal person who ever lived, and he was God. So there's all this evidence, but do you find in doing apologetics or trying to reach people that it's it seems like so many people are more emotionally based? I mean, do you think your approach can reach what I would call a feelings-based person as opposed to a more intellectual-type individual? Well, okay, so I, I would say this. I, I, one thing you'll never hear me say in the book, I never use the word prove. I don't, I don't try to prove anything, uh, because proof is really how the interpreter, how the hearer of evidence makes an inference. So I can say this is, there's good evidence for this, there's evidence for that, but whether or not that evidence rises to what you would consider proof, that's actually more of an internal process for every juror. So I, you know, I, I'm very careful about what I, what I claim I can prove. I can say I think the most reasonable inference from evidence is X, but your decision is going to be based on a lot of other things, not just the evidence. Uh, sadly, it's going to be based on, on things like your experiences, your, your biases, what you like, what you don't like, what you wish for, what you don't wish for, what you accept about the world, what you don't accept about the world. There's lots of other factors that come in. So I, I'm always very pretty modest about that. But I would say this, you're right, there are some people who experience things, but even people who experience things, and that's how they determine truth claims, for the most part, they do not ignore the evidence when it comes to other decisions they make. Um, mm. They will base their, it's, it's, yes, some things are going to be based on their experiences, but other things, decisions they make, medical decisions they make, at some point they default to an objective evaluation of evidence to make important decisions. 
And we're just saying, hey, this is the most important decision you're going to make. And here's how I would put it. If, if it's based on experience, just an experience you've had, well, then everyone else's religious beliefs must also be true because the vast majority of religious believers believe on their, their have to hold their beliefs based on experiences. If you ask any kind of religious believer, why do you think Hinduism is true? They're probably not going to make an evidential case for it. That's right. true for Christians, too. That's true for Mormons. That's true for Jehovah's Witnesses. That's true for everyone. And one thing that, that ties in with that is the thing that Henry Ford said. He said, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few engage in it. And, you know, would you agree? I think raising children is also up there as really hard work, but yet really rewarding. And and I just want to say that thinking is also very rewarding. It may be hard work, but it's one some of the most rewarding work you can do. Well, and I think we are. We have to be be honest about that. We we hold to a thinking view of our our faith. Jesus was a thinker, and he told us not to go out and make converts, but to go out and make disciples, right. teaching them all that he had taught them. So so this is a thinking man's uh, view of the world, and we ought to and take the same approach that Jesus would take. You know, real quick, we only have a few seconds left, Jim. Can you briefly share with us what Jesus means to you personally? Well, I think once you decide to make a decision that something is true, then the decision is, do you want to give your life to it? This is the truth that I am willing to bend my knee to. I realize now I, there is a God, and I'm not him. And that means I'm going to be in a position of humility and submission and in gratitude because I didn't have to come to this place. It was because God allowed me to do, he opened the door of my mind to be able to assess the evidence fairly. So it's a position of gratitude that I hold today. Well, thank you. You're influencing so many people. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Uh, Thanks a lot, Jim. I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks so much. To bless your neighbor this week, folks, become even more familiar with the abundant evidence we have that Jesus is God. Ponder that. Be one of the wise persons the Bible talks about, not one of the foolish people who buries his talent in the sand and testify about it. Remember this book, Person of Interest by J. Warner Wallace. I'm telling you, it'll captivate you from the first page. Till next week. Thanks for joining us for Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Join us next week at this same time as Kathleen Melanakis, author and retired registered nurse, and her husband, Brian Melanakis, former company president, explore the deeper issues and spiritual forces behind the news and how we as believers can be salt and light in our culture and in the political arena. Biblical Citizen Let's Roll seeks to educate and activate Christians at the grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibilities to influence civic affairs for good. Next week, we will cover more major news happening from the view of the biblical citizen. To learn more about this show, how to become a guest or sponsor, send an email to biblicalcitizen at gmail.com. That's biblicalcitizen at gmail.com. This has been Biblical Citizen. Let's roll on K-Praise. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.